And now we're going to have our first reading, which is taken from 1 Kings 18, uh, sorry, 19, verses 1 to 8. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. Is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly, an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. He looked and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat. Otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. And now our second reading is from John 6, verses 35 to 59. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will, co will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who will see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Then the Jews began to complain about him, because he said, I am the bread, come down from heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say now, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. 
For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. I'm going to invite Simon up now to come and share the word. So let's think about bread of life and what it means for Jesus to be talking about bread that gives us life in this way. Back in the day, well, uh, back in my day anyway, which was definitively the day because it was the 1980s and you don't get any better than that, there was a popular film called Highlander starring none other than Sean Connery. It was one of the box office smash hits of 1986. Um, it was an interesting film because it explored the issue of what it might mean to be immortal. The premise of the film was that there are living amongst us a race of immortals who survive from generation to generation, carrying their battles down the centuries, whilst those around them who they form relationships with just get old and die. And one of the great things about this film was its soundtrack, which included a number of songs by the rock group Queen, one of these was a poignant ballad written by astrophysicist guitarist Brian May, who asked over and over again in this song, who wants to live forever. And in the film, this song was used to frame the scenes where the hero must endure his beloved wife growing old and dying, whilst he, an immortal, remains forever young. And I can remember listening to this song with all the optimism of a 14-year-old and in response to its repeated questioning of whoever who wants to live forever, I found myself thinking to myself, well, I do. To quote another Queen song, I want it all. There is just sometimes, it seems, so much to do in one lifetime. We all need a bit longer. And I've long joked that discovering the secret of living forever is my sleeper project. It's something I work on when I've got an idle moment, and I have to say now as I approach the end of my fifth decade, so far, so good. I set a new personal best this morning, so it's all going well so far. But of course it's not that clear-cut, is it? I mean, would we really want to live forever? I've asked a few people and the response has been mixed. Some, like me, have a kind of instant yes-of-course approach in which the benefits must surely outweigh the disadvantages. Others seem to take a more considered view, recognising that eternal life may not be all it's cracked up to be. I'm tempted to take a straw poll this morning, but I think I'll just leave it for each of us to consider our own response to the question, who wants to live forever? But whilst we're thinking about this, it's worth also remembering the story about one of the characters in Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series of books. This is a character who has had immortality accidentally thrust upon him, and he finds himself unable to come to terms with his, long his longevity, and he gets increasingly frustrated with a universe that he is growing tired of. And so, to pass the time, he decides to embark on a quest using a little time machine 
to insult every living being in the universe in alphabetical order. And I have to wonder whether I too, in time, with enough time, would find myself tiring of life. If someone offered me the elixir of eternal use, would I really drink it? If some alchemist perfected the philosopher's stone, would I really grasp it? Many historic cultures include myths which address this issue. With the tantalizing offer of eternal life striking right at the heart of the oh-so-human fear of ageing and dying. And of course, in our own world, we're offered promise after promise of ways to stave off the inevitable, with anti-ageing products, diet regimes, magic bullets, and a preserve-life-at-all-costs approach to ageing and dying. Eternal youth, it seems, is only one trip to the Botox clinic away. And many of us live in the hope that the medical profession will find ways to keep us fit and active until we're well into our 90s, if not beyond. But I suspect in the end, death will come to us all. Death and taxes, as Benjamin Franklin once said. So who wants to live forever? Well, come back in time with me to a synagogue in Capernaum nearly 2,000 years ago, and a local preacher is down on the rotor to speak. He stands up to address the congregation, and he asks roughly the same question that we've been considering this morning. Who wants to live forever? This was, for the Jews of the first century, a live question, and there were different schools of thought around about whether eternal life was possible or not. The Sadducees were a Jewish group that arose during the Maccabean period, and they famously believed that uh, the soul did not exist beyond death, with therefore no possibility of either reward or punishment taking place after you die. So for the Sadducees, this life was all there was, and it needed to be lived carefully and faithfully. I remember being told in Sunday school many years ago that you can remember that it's the Sadducees who don't believe in life after death because they're sad, you see. Whereas other groups, such as the Pharisees, seemed to see some future for the human soul beyond the point of the ending of the body. And they came to believe that the rights and wrongs of this life could be sorted out in the afterlife. And so it's into this context of a live debate between two groups within Judaism about whether there was immortality of the soul or not. It's into this context that our young preacher in uh, this synagogue suddenly starts talking about bread and the importance of eating bread to stay alive. And at one level, this is absolutely correct, of course. Without regular food, of which bread was the staple component, the people of Israel would starve and die. In years of famine, when the grain harvest failed, the reaping of corn was all too swiftly replaced by the grim reaper coming to harvest the lives of the living. Bread was indeed essential for life. But even a regular diet of bread couldn't stave off the inevitable forever. Eventually, even the most well-fed member of the aristocracy would get ill and die of something or other. 
Bread, it seems, is all very well to keep you going until tomorrow, but it won't keep you going eternally. The dependence on bread had been a feature of the ancient Near Eastern lifestyle since Neolithic times, and the rhythm of seed time and harvest had enabled the growth of great civilizations in the ancient Near Eastern world. But within the Jewish religious tradition, the dependence on bread had acquired a metaphorical meaning alongside its more kind of prosaic meaning. The daily consumption of bread within Judaism had come to signify the importance of the regular taking into yourself of spiritual nourishment alongside the physical nourishment of the grain. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3, we find the phrase quoted by Jesus at his temptation in the wilderness in the Synoptic Gospels. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, so says the book of Deuteronomy. And clearly there's a parallel to be drawn between the physical life that physical bread sustains and the spiritual life which also needs sustenance from the words that come from the mouth of God. The body may be nourished by the regular consumption of bread, but for someone to be truly alive in a spiritual as well as physical sense apparently needs something more. And the suggestion of the writer of Deuteronomy is that what is required is to regularly ingest the word of God. So from the perspective of this ancient Jewish author, the word of God would have been understood as the words of the Jewish Torah, the stories and laws found in the first five books of the Bible, and especially those stories associated with the exodus of the Jews from their time of slavery in Israel. And the story of how the people of God had found release from Egypt and journeyed through the wilderness for 40 years and eventually entered into the promised land was one of those foundational stories for the Jewish self-understanding. They remembered the moment that God had freed their ancestors from slavery in their celebration of the Passover meal. The Passover meal, of course, was the meal where they broke bread together where they remembered their identity as those whom God had spared from the angel of death. And of course, within the Christian tradition, the Passover meal, this breaking of bread becomes our communion meal. The ancient Jews also remembered how God had sustained them through the wilderness with manna from heaven, that strange bread-like substance which appeared on the ground every morning and was good to eat, but which didn't keep overnight. So ensuring the people of God were daily dependent on the nourishment that God sent. And it's this image of daily bread from God that lies behind the injunction not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Daily dependence on God is what is required, a regular consumption of God's word. Meditating and ruminating on God's commands was presented as the way to achieve a wholeness of being, a path to life in a spiritual as well as physical sense. So when Jesus, speaking in the synagogue in Capernaum, starts to talk about bread, 
He's addressing a context that would already have been familiar with everything I've just outlined. This need for a spiritual as well as physical nourishment and for the eating of bread as a symbol of this. But the way Jesus puts it, there's a new twist and a provocative one at that. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. I am the bread of life. And in this one short phrase, Jesus lays personal claim to two of Israel's greatest religious concepts. His opening words, I am, ego eimi in the Greek. I am is an echo of the divine name given to Moses on Mount Sinai, when Moses asked, well, who shall I say that you are to God? God replies, I am who I am. And on the other hand, this phrase, bread of life, symbolized as we have seen the Jewish Torah, the words of the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and all that flows from them. So by Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, Jesus is laying claim not only to being in some way Torah made flesh, but also God made flesh. And then he ups the ante even further, because he says, I am the bread of life, and then goes on to claim that whoever eats of this bread of life will live forever. Whereas the bread given by God in the wilderness and through the Torah was capable of sustaining a person through their natural life, both physically and spiritually, Jesus suddenly started claiming that the bread of life that he offered in his body was capable of defeating death itself. This doesn't just sustain you to the end of life, but beyond it. It almost sounds like one advertising campaign too far, doesn't it? Really eat this bread and live forever? Would that get through the Advertising Standards Authority these days? I somehow doubt it. It certainly didn't get past the Pharisees, who were under no illusions as to the controversial and radical nature of Jesus' claims to be the bread of life. And so the Pharisees start to complain about him, muttering to anyone who will listen that this is just Jesus of Nazareth. His mother and father are well known to all of us. He's nothing special. He's got no basis on which to go offering these kinds of promises. But of course, for every person who didn't want to hear it, there were plenty of others who were hooked. Because whilst the radical nature of Jesus' revisioning of what it means to be in relationship with God was threatening to those who had a vested interest in the status quo, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it was similarly liberating for those who had been controlled and manipulated by the Pharisaic gatekeepers of eternal life. You see, the Pharisees have been telling people that the bread that leads to spiritual life was the bread of Torah. The bread of the law, as interpreted by them, of course. And suddenly here was Jesus, claiming to personify both Torah and God, making them freely accessible to everyone. I am the bread of life, he says. Whoever eats of me will live, he says. The ones who eat this bread will live forever, he says. 
This is undermining everything that the Pharisees had set up for themselves as the religious gatekeepers. The impossible dream, the bread of eternal life, is suddenly and unexpectedly announced in a synagogue in Capernaum. And of course, Jesus wasn't talking about the avoidance of physical death itself, any more than he was talking about re-entering the womb when he told Nicodemus that he must be born again a little bit earlier in the story. Rather, Jesus was speaking about entering into an eternal quality of life, which transcends physical death. The good news of Capernaum is the defeat of spiritual death. It is the entering into a new way of being that has an eternal quality and carries eternal value. It's not actually saying eat the bread of the Passover or whatever and you're never going to physically die. That's the metaphor Jesus is using to convey something far more profound, which is life eternal. For the ordinary Jew, unwilling to embrace the scepticism of the Sadducees, who said there is no life after death, but oppressed by the legalistic religion of the Pharisees, who said if you want life after death, you've got to do it our way. This message of Jesus as the bread of life was a message of life in all its fullness. A new way of living in the here and now, which finds eternity in each present moment, which sees the eternal value of mundane life. Each minute is given an eternal quality in Jesus. The temporary manner of the Torah, the daily observance of the law, the regular rituals of religion give way in Christ to a joyful embracing of the now, as this moment, right now, is welcomed into God's eternal embrace. When is eternity? When does it begin? What does it look like? It looks like now. Sitting in an uncomfortable pew in central London, this is eternal life. Jesus promises that he will lose nothing that has been entrusted to him, and that all that he has been given, each moment will be held fast and will receive the life eternal. So what earthly difference does this make to us then? All this talk of bread that gives eternal life, all this talk of eternity in the here and now, sounds a bit like a William Blake poem, what does it mean for us? What are we here today to make of this? Well, I wonder if in many ways we're in the same place as those hearing this for the first time. Some of us will be Sadducees. We're the rationalists who can't quite bring ourselves to buy into the belief that there's more to this life than meets the eye. I get that. Some of us are Pharisees. So sure we're right because we've been doing it this way for years. And we're unwilling to let go of the values that have got us safely this far. 
And then some of us will just be somewhere in the middle on that spectrum. Neither the rational skeptic nor the religious establishment, but just people longing for some good news in this life. Well, to the Sadducees amongst us, Jesus affirms the present. The here and now does indeed matter. Eternity does begin today. And who we are here is who we shall be eternally, welcomed and purified and redeemed and held safe forever by the one who calls us to follow him. But Jesus also challenges the Sadducees to recognise that just because now matters doesn't mean there is no hope for tomorrow. For those of us stuck in our rationality, focusing only on that which we can see, taste, touch and measure, Jesus asks us to dare to believe that there is an eternal dimension to who we are and what we do. Because maybe if we can let go of our ownership of the now, if we can learn to trust our present to God's eternity, maybe then we can find release from the burden of today and embrace wholeheartedly the risk-taking adventure that is our part in the inbreaking kingdom of God. To the Pharisees amongst us, Jesus affirms the future reassuring us that all our hard work and self-denial and care and attention to the details is not lost. None of that is lost. But he also releases us from the necessity to care quite so much. And he calls us to trust him when life loses its certainty, to trust him when others do it differently. And he reminds us that our way isn't the only right way and that the lives of others are also valued and held fast by God, even when they seem very far from the way we have been called to live. And maybe if we can let go of our ownership of the future, he says to the Pharisees of today, maybe then we can find release from the burden of making sure that we and everybody else has to get there in the right way. And maybe we can learn to embrace wholeheartedly the risk-taking adventure that is our part in the inbreaking kingdom of God. And then to the rest of us, Jesus affirms our value as people of eternal worth. And he calls us to join him in changing the world. If we can learn to trust him with our lives and our deaths, and if we can learn to embrace today without fear of its ending, then, maybe then, we will discover that death has lost its power over us. And when this happens, we can discover the freedom and the liberation that Christ gives to live each moment as an instant of eternal worth. There's a wonderful apocryphal story told about Francis of Assisi. I'd love it to be true, and I hope it is. He was out hoeing the garden one day and was approached by someone who said to him, great saint, if you knew that tonight you were going to die, what final great work would you accomplish with your last afternoon on earth? To which Francis replied that he would finish hoeing the garden. because today matters, 
The task for today matters. Whether it's a mundane day or an important day, a day of pain or a day of rejoicing, a day of youth or a day of age, today matters. And if this moment is of eternal value, then we can risk it all for the sake of the inbreaking kingdom of God. If we're no longer defeated by the power of death, then we are liberated to live fully in the present. And so today, if we are sustained through the wilderness of the world by the bread that gives life, if we're nourished by the bread of the body of Christ, who lived and died and rises eternally to new life, then we have before us the path that leads through death. And in following that path, we find the freedom and the strength to live life in all its fullness in each moment that it is given to us. And so we ourselves become, in turn, the agents of good news to the world, recognising and proclaiming the eternal value of each human soul. Have you ever met those wonderful Christians? They're often a bit older in years, but not always, although I suspect this wisdom is often acquired with the passing of years. Those wonderful people who just make you feel so alive. If this moment of our life has eternal value, then it is also of eternal value in everyone else's life as well. Their lives matter too. And so when we engage the world in the name of Jesus Christ, we must find ourselves challenging those policies and decisions which depersonalize or objectify. We must remind the powers that be that people are always more than statistics and that every human life is of equal value. We must resist the insidious voice which whispers in the ears of the powerful that one person is of more worth than another and that privilege is a right, not a gift. And as we do this, as we challenge the world, as we pay attention to the individual soul of each created person, as we go down Parliament Square at the end of March and wave placards and talk to MPs about the fact that care and health workers deserve to be paid enough so that they can feed their families. As we do all this and so much more, we find that our intercessory prayers take on a new dimension because as we bring others before God, we do so in the confidence that nothing that is good in this world is ever lost and that God keeps all things held safe for eternity. So when we hear the news of floods and fires and famines, of civil war and terrorism, as forces mass in Europe once again and threaten war, as there is so much suffering around the globe, we are not left powerless before God. Because as we pray for those who suffer, we know that even in the depths of hell on earth, the crucified and risen Christ is present. The broken body is the food of life the bread of life for humanity. The astonishing news of the bread of life is that the broken body of Christ on the cross is the nourishment that brings the lost to life. The bread of life is broken and those who are dying 
can receive the gift of life eternal. This is the good news of the gospel of Christ. Amen. I shall now invite up our panellists, Liz and Solomon, and I believe Jeff, not joining us online, okay. Solomon and Liz. Um, do you want to go first, Liz? It's random rambling thoughts, mainly about bread, but I'll happily <laughs> share them. Um, I mean, I wrote down, um, first of all, straight, as Simon was talking about, life in all its fullness, because I'm one of those people who, if I was asked if I wanted to live forever, would probably say no, I'm afraid. Um, I, I think that it's kind of quality that, that would be really important to me. Um, I really like the, the Old Testament reading because there's, there's a reference to Elijah waking up um, when, when the angel feeds him with uh, cake, um, which um, sounds really good. You know, I'm <laughs> guessing it's kind of a bready cake. But, um, and um, it, it just kind of got me thinking about how um, I don't like in the... In the the reading the kind of concept of feeding on Jesus I've never really liked that concept he's never really done it for me but um the the idea that if we are all feeding on Jesus who is the bread of life and you know there is something about Jesus is saying I am the bread of life that's very powerful um and very comforting to know that there's such um sort of a definite um answer there but um if we're all feeding on the bread of life I think it's this kind of understanding that there's lots of different types of bread and that actually we bring all our own um, flavours to that. And um, so for me, life in all its fullness is something about being willing to, um, I mean, Simon said dare to, he, meant, he used the, firm, the, the phrase dare to, so dare to, to, to kind of seek um, not just the plain bread, but also go for the different flavours and be willing to accept that from other people as well. Um, so I think that, yeah, I mean, I was actually thinking um, a lot about, uh, I'm sure many of you have actually experienced Anne's lovely bread and she does lots of different flavors and that's amazing. And we've got a bread maker at home and sometimes we make some seriously dodgy looking bread. <laughs> Often the stuff that doesn't raise turns out to be really quite nice because it turns a bit cakey. So, um, so yeah, so that's my idea of kind of life and all its fullness. As I said, just ramblings about bread, really. Thank you, Liz. I do like the idea of different types of bread. And immediately thought of the, the Chinese bakery in Chinatown. And just, oh, the amazing, you should go there definitely afterwards for lunch. But that fullness, I love the idea of the fullness and the richness, as well as the mundane. Uh, I can see that Jeff is there now. Uh, come to you next, Jeff, because I can see your microphone's already on. Uh, yep, yeah, okay, and um, I really want, I'm a, I'm a bit of a Sadducee, and I want you to contrast uh, eternal versus everlasting life. I've got no problem with the mathematics of the dimensions. easier if you contrast the opposites. So the opposite of eternal is temporal, a life that can be measured in time units, be they years or aeons. The opposite of everlasting is instantaneous, still measured in time units, but very short ones, let's say picoseconds. Eternal cannot be measured in time units. It has no aspect of time. The question is, would a first century Jew understand that distinction? 
I asked, a couple of years ago, my colleague is an ultra-orthodox Jew, and he thought they would. So I think it's a mistake to think of eternal life in terms of duration. It is right to think of eternal life in terms of some attributes, I'm not sure they can be measured or even ranked of quality. So I tend to balk when preachers casually switch between eternal and everlasting. Reading Simon's sermon, he starts by doing this and then as he develops, he's reaching for my grasp of what the word eternal means. So I'm, I'm then left with questioning the word eternity, of course, <laughs> which is a bit strange in the context, but I still think I want to separate eternal from everlasting. Thank you, Jeff. I'm just, the quality of sound in the, the church hasn't been great. If I paraphrase, uh, so you're talking about the, that, the, the contrast between eternal and everlasting and whether or not those in the first century would have recognized the difference and whether eternal would have meant without time or whether they would have thought of it as being like a ongoing moments of time and how you've heard preachers interchange those words, but there being a, a difference and a nuance there. Um, and I'm afraid I didn't catch the end though, but is that kind of what you were talking about? Yeah, yeah, if, if you've got a few of the chat in the church, I, put, I posted it. Great, thank you. So um, he has posted it in the chat. So if you wanna, we can figure out what he said and share that a bit later. Solomon, can I come to you and ask you to share your thoughts, please? Yes, please don't, thank you. Well, I'm taking to another imagination about life. Um, imagination is like, what would life be like um, if I um, only am only concerned about physical food? That is like, have bread, have rice, go to sleep, and wake up in the morning. And to what Jesus bring into our spirituality in terms of um, um, on top of that physical uh, food to keep my body going what a spiritual aspect about wisdom um, about judgment um, about the soul food uh, uh, so to speak um, what will life be like if we only think about the physical and for those people only that only believe in physical things, that is to eat and uh, materialistic things and all of those things. What's about those other things uh, that define the spiritual uh, uh, that Jesus talked about uh, when he talked about bread and things that um, fulfill life uh, in terms of the judgment, the laws, uh, Things that God wants us to be. Thank you, Solomon. I think for me, I, there have definitely been times in my life where I've only focused on the physical and I have neglected the spiritual and I have definitely been bereft because of it. I think that there, there has to be that balance of the here and now, the physical, the reality, as well as the, the not yet, the spiritual and looking for nourishment in both places and, and more. Um, my feeling of this was like, what does like life in its fullness mean? And whether or not it's, it, it is just, I sometimes think of when people talk about life in their fullness, it means you have to be enjoying every single day to its fullness. 
Whereas actually I really like the idea of the, the mundane and the beautiful. And, and I have to say with two small kids, sometimes every day is a slog, but there are still those beautiful moments in amongst that mundane and in amongst the, the hard and the difficult. And perhaps living life in its fullness is about having that awareness and being switched on to the beauty in, in everything. I think we'll probably, unless anyone else has anything. So let's move on. Thank you for those who have shared this morning and have our prayers of intercession. Yeah. Let us pray. O thou in whose presence we seek refuge, we come. We come without one plea just as we are against the forces of darkness and of principality just as we are though tossed about with many conflicts many adult fighting and fears within and without we come O land of God have mercy our struggles are against the power of darkness and against forces of evil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Father, we pray for the peoples of Ukraine and of Russia. We pray for the international community as to seek peace and understanding. We pray that your power will be revealed that there is no other way for mankind than to seek peace and understanding. Father, we come just as we are, with all our flaws, our weaknesses, feelings, our prejudices, our unreconcilable differences, misunderstandings, and warlike posture. We come. Father, we thank you. We have been lifted up because of your mercy on us. You are our son and shield. Bestow us with your favor, O God. Amidst the hardship of dealing with life-threatening diseases, conflicts, the rising cost of living, political instabilities, confusion, accusations and counter-accusations, you have remained faithful, O oh God. Father, we come. We pray for the people of Afghanistan that the rights of women there will be transformed. Have mercy for those who seek to oppress women, for they know not what they do. Create in us a pure heart, O God, The people in all places, regardless of race, affiliations, orientations, wealth, geographies, income, of all divides, will understand that in you there is no east nor west, no north or south. Father, we in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen.
Let's share the grace together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us evermore. Amen. <laughs>